My name's Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. I've lived a pretty parochial life, really. I've never lived abroad, but I have lived in the West Midlands and I support a football team from there. I've spent many years in Yorkshire and I had a kind of association with Yorkshire and most of my life I've spent in London. So what am I? I'm a Londoner, a football team, West Midlands. I support Yorkshire at cricket. I don't really know where I'm from in the country now. Why is that interesting? Well, you'll find out why this question of people's identities and regional identities are interesting as our conversation today continues. So we're going to be talking about an idea. Usually on this program, we talk about books, but this is just about an article, a single article. But it was an article that really captured my attention, partly because of the content, mainly because of the content, but also because of the person who wrote it. Someone I used to work with many years ago, someone I follow very carefully, someone who's on the one hand, incredibly moderate in his opinions, but on the other hand, whatever he feels, he seems to feel it very strongly. And that's our guest today, Andrew Adonis. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Matthew, great to be with you. I think that's a fair summary. You're much the same, if I may say so. <laughs> you hold your opinion strongly and you're the better for it. You're much more out there on Twitter than I would dare to be. I'm afraid I've got thinner skin than you. So, Andrew, we're going to talk about this article you've written for The New European, which kind of advocates a federal Britain. And before we get into that argument, I'm always interested, when did you decide to do this? What was the point at which you thought, I need to take this idea, I'm committed to this and I need to write it? Was it just a moment of inspiration or an event you were at, a conversation you had? What was it? My views on how you distribute power within a large country like Britain have been, I'll be quite frank, evolving over many years. There are very, very few countries of our size that aren't federations. It's unusual to have a single unitary state of our size, which has just one parliament and one government at the centre. In a democracy, obviously, there are plenty of authoritarian regimes like China and Russia, which don't have devolution, but one of our size. And the impact of Brexit, where it was quite clear to me that part of the reason why we did Brexit was because there was a feeling, particularly in the regions of England, which have economically had a hard time over the last 15 years, and for whom, to be absolutely frank, London is as far away as Brussels. They're much more anti-London than they were anti-Brussels, but they only had the chance to vote against Brussels in the referendum. A combination of that, plus what I think is the quite dangerous rise of separatist nationalism in Scotland. I mean, I was strongly in favour of a Scottish parliament and still am, but I think Scottish independence would be a mistake. It made me realise that we've got to start thinking really seriously about federalism in the United Kingdom, and we haven't done so in the past. Which is a wonderful segue into the question that we ask everybody on this podcast. So, Andrew Adonis, what's your big idea for post-COVID Britain? Well, we need to turn the United Kingdom into a genuine federation. Though it's called the United Kingdom because it's a union of crowns, it was a king of Scotland who became king of England as well in 1603. And uh, Wales went through a similar process 100 years before. And Ireland, which had the king of England as its 
king, but had a separate parliament, lost that parliament in 1800. So that's called the United Kingdom. In fact, it's one country for the purposes of its government with devolution only in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And though I love the Scots, the Welsh and the Northern Irish, that only accounts for 10 million out of the 67 million in the UK. 57 million are accounted for by England. And England is the most centralised state now of its size in Western Europe, much more centralised than Germany, which is a genuine federation with its regional governments, the lender, and more centralised even now than France, because since Francois Mitterrand, France has had regional governments, and though it's probably still too centralised, and I know many of the French feel that, it's got more power handed down both to regions and to local communities, because the commune are a very integral part of French government and always have been. We are much more centralised in England than they are in France. I think we've really got to start looking at this again if we want to hold the UK together and share power and wealth much more evenly across England. Now, your new European piece, you take the risk, which I don't think I'd have done, actually, because I would immediately know that people would question it. You've actually taken the risk of drawing a kind of map and suggesting what the kind of regions, what the kind of lender, we might call them, of the United Kingdom would be in your model One of the reasons I was interested in that is because we share, you and I, a bit of kind of past pain, which is that we were both in different ways supporting a government that proposed the Northeastern England Assembly. And it's interesting, Andrew, as you get older, you realise you have to remind people of, (laughs) of things which they may find very significant and not know. Now, that referendum is very significant. It's very significant to your argument because basically it was a disaster. I think it was, what, 70-30, 80-20 against the idea of setting up a regional assembly? It was pretty overwhelming. I remember John Prescott was in charge of the campaign. And we created that. I'm not sure Tony Blair was ever that enthusiastic, but we did this because we felt we were responding to the desire. This wasn't an attempt to impose things on people. We thought we were responding to a clear, demonstrable desire for more self-government in the northeast of England. And we fell flat on our face. Now, of course, the other significant thing, which I shall leave you to reveal to our listeners, is who was in charge of the rather brilliant campaign to defeat the proposal for a northeast regional assembly? Well, as you and I both know, it was Dominic Cummings. And indeed, it's where he cut his teeth in terms of national politics. And then he made something of a speciality, didn't he, of taking the no side of big referendums. And that's what propelled him to national power. So you're absolutely right to draw attention to the the car crash that we had with the first attempt at creating regional government in England outside London. But the outside London bit is very important because actually the Blair government held two referendums on creating strong regions. By strong regions, I mean elected regional governments with power. We held two referendums and one we won by miles and one we lost by miles. We won by miles, the one in London which is why we have a mayor of London and a Greater London Assembly, which even Cummings isn't at the moment proposing to abolish. And then we held one in the North East, which we lost. And I think it's quite important, looking back on it, to understand why we won the London referendum and lost the North East referendum. We won the London one for three reasons. Firstly, London is a natural community. Londoners feel that they are Londoners. Secondly, 
there was a long tradition of self-government in London. There had been a Greater London Council before and before that, a London County Council going back more than a century. But the third reason, I think this is the place to start, is that everybody in London in the 1990s, and you and I will remember this, Matthew, because you know, going back even further than the Blair government, thought that London was falling apart. After the GLC was abolished by the Thatcher government in the mid-1980s, there was no one democratically accountable and responsible for running London transport, the police service in London, responsible for housing in London. And the general view of Londoners, because it was true, is that the whole thing was falling apart. The tubes weren't working, the buses weren't there, congestion was at crisis levels in London. And therefore, the proposal for the mayor and assembly in London was in response to a specific and very clear social need widely shared by Londoners, which is why we run the referendum. The problem in the North East is that we didn't at the time know what was the question that we were answering. And therefore, when you said that Tony Blair was lukewarm, I mean, you're completely right. In private, he was actually opposed to the idea of a North East Assembly. And he didn't lift a finger to get the idea through a referendum, which I think is why it lost. But the reason was he couldn't work out what it was going to do, what was going to be the equivalent for the North East of transport for London. Now, I think we've got a much, much clearer idea of that now. We need massive economic and infrastructure regeneration in the regions. And I think there's now a general view that that can't come without really serious devolution of power. I find that fascinating that you feel that the case has shifted so much. Do you remember, by the way, Andrew, do you remember the particular bit of campaigning genius that Dominic Cummings used in that referendum is no campaign? I don't. Tell me. What was it? An inflatable white elephant. <laughs> and I remember John Prescott saying in his inimitable fashion at the end of the referendum, this catastrophe that he was in charge of, he said, we had a set of arguments for the need for regional economic development, industrial renewal, urban regeneration and stronger democratic accountability. The other side had a 20 foot long inflatable white elephant. Guess who won? So I think we, we were reminded, of course, the lesson was then subsequently forgotten of the power of populist campaigning and Dominic Cummings' particular type of genius. So you know, I'm interested, Andrew, in your three reasons, because the first one, I don't want to get obsessed by this because people tend to get obsessed by this. But I have to ask you about the first one, which is this notion of identity, because there are parts of the country where you know, there is a kind of sense that you can put people together and they'll say, yes, I recognise that region. I am part of that region. But as you know, in other parts of the country, it's much, much more difficult. In the southeast, it's more difficult. It's difficult in the northwest because despite the loving now between Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham, Liverpudlians don't want to be run from Manchester. Manchester's don't be run by Liverpudlians, etc. How big a hurdle to the notion of a federal UK, which, by the way, I completely agree with, how big a hurdle are these arguments which say, well, hang on, I'm not part of that region. I'm not part of that area. It's definitely the case that lack of regional identity was part of the reason why we failed in the northeast and why we succeeded in London. Londoners feel that they're Londoners. Very few people, as you say, say they're from the northeast. And the idea of people from Newcastle, Gateshead and Middlesbrough all getting together and thinking they've got an overriding identity, I'm afraid, just isn't where things are at. However, I've been very influenced in this by... The last book I wrote, which was a biography of Ernie Bevin, the great post-war foreign secretary. And as I read it, it became clear to me, which I hadn't realised before, that Bevin's greatest achievement by far, and he had many in his life, he was the founder of the Transport and General Workers Union, he was Churchill's Minister of Labour and so on. His greatest achievement by far was the creation of the country which we now call the Federal Republic of Germany. 
The Federal Republic of Germany grew out of the British and the American democratic zones in the western part of Germany, which were put together into a state which was the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, in 1949. And a key part of that state was federal units, lender, regions, 11 of them, most of which were artificial, though some of them were natural. Hamburg obviously was a great city, and that became a state in its own right. Baden-Württemberg, North Rhine-Westphalia, these were essentially artificial constructs. They did have some building blocks of regional identity. Westphalia was an ancient nation, Bavaria was an ancient kingdom, and so on. But of necessity, in order to get regions of a a sufficiently large size, they were put together. Now, indeed, from quite a short period after the Federal Republic was launched in 1949, these lender developed very strong senses of regional commitment. It's not to say that people from Baden thought that they'd somehow, you know, were in the, the same as people from Württemberg, but they did achieve a sufficient sense of identity to make them viable as governmental units. And I think we need to learn from that in creating regions for England, that if you get people to accept, as I think we now can, that we cannot run this whole country by fiat from Whitehall and Westminster, then we have to come together in some kind of constitutional convention, some way of getting the politicians to agree what are going to be the best regions, and then we have to go with that. I imagine, Andrew, that you think your chances of persuading the present government to go down this path are limited. But I'm interested in to what extent do you think that COVID and the experience of COVID and the government's kind of ambivalence about localism throughout this crisis, which seems to be on the one hand a kind of hostility to it, an assumption that the centre knows best, number 10 knows best, Dominic Cummings perhaps knows best, and then occasionally a recognition that actually they simply can't run things from the centre. So do you think that the experience of COVID plays into this in the sense that it strengthens the argument because it reminds people of the fact that national infrastructure is generally speaking not effective when it comes to wanting to kind of mobilise local people and to bring together local institutions. Definitely. Just look at what's happened to Andy Burnham up in Manchester and Steve Rotherham. Both of them have been not just much more powerful regional spokespeople than any minister. And indeed, there isn't a senior minister who comes from the Northwest in this government. But they've also been able to articulate regional concerns much better than anything that's been done from the centre either. And I think that is helping to change attitudes. And when we said that there's been no move towards regions outside London in the last 20 years, that's not actually completely true. What happened on the rebound from the failure of the Northeastern Assembly was a decision which I was a party to actually at the time, to seek to build up what we called city regions. That was to take units which were the main major cities and their conurbations, which did have a strong sense of identity, and to give them devolved powers, which is the reason why Andy Burnham is there as the mayor of Greater Manchester, because we, the Labour government, took the decision to create what was called a combined authority, which was a kind of Greater London authority equivalent for Greater Manchester. And then the government after us, the coalition government, imposed on that a directly elected mayor. Actually, I supported that decision, as it happens, though Labour didn't to go for a mayor. And that's the reason why the Greater Manchester region exists, has an elected authority, and Andy Burnham is its mayor. And building out from that, I think it is possible now to gain much more support for this idea of elected regions in England outside London. I think what's interesting to me there, Andrew, is that part of the success of the city region movement has been that there was a kind of framework that said to places, if you want more powers 
you're going to have to work together. And that's what happened. Now, it was easy to do in Manchester because Richard Leese, who'd been Howard Bernstein, respectively leader and the chief executive for many, many years, had a very strong relationship with the other local authorities in Greater Manchester. And so it was kind of ready to go. They had done that infrastructure building. I suspect the story in the West Midlands has not been nearly as impressive for some of the reasons that I described, which is, you know, if you live in Coventry, you don't want to be run from Birmingham. Or if you live in the kind of leafier suburbs of Warwickshire and Staffordshire, you don't want to be run from Birmingham for different kinds of reasons. Now, does that suggest to you, Andrew, that if this idea of a federal Britain was taken forward by a future Keir Starmer government, for example, that we should have the same kind of permissive approach, which is to say, look, here's a set of powers and freedoms and possibly money that you can have in a region if you, local authorities in that region, other institutions in that region, come together and agree that that's what you want to do, and you can persuade the public in the region to support it. And then in a way, although it might take longer, you do it region by region, rather than an approach which says, let's try and impose this federal structure on parts of the country for whom this identity question could really be a deal breaker. I think that's a really good idea, Matthew, and I would go with that as a way of doing it. Actually, you mentioned the West Midlands not having an identity. There is a mayor of the West Midlands, which came out of the experience of Manchester. Indeed, I was a party to helping it happen. On the rebound from Andy Burnham becoming the mayor of Greater Manchester and the powers that were devolved, there was a very strong feeling by local authorities across the West Midlands that they were being left behind. You know, big decisions like HS2, regional regeneration, the handing down of significant funds for skills and areas like that was happening in Greater Manchester. And remember, Greater Manchester got its metro, which is one of the great achievements of Richard Lees when he was leader of Manchester City Council, which was expanded further when the combined authority was set up. People in Birmingham, Coventry, Wolverhampton, Warwickshire started looking at that and saying, hey, we're really being left behind. And it was from that that the decision was taken to create a combined authority in the West Midlands, which has a mayor, Andy Street, who's the former managing director of John Lewis, so a really serious figure. And next year, there's going to be, you know, one of the battle royals in the elections of next May will be between Andy Street, who's a Tory, and Liam Byrne, who you and I know well from government, who's standing for Labour. So I think actually in the West Midlands, you wouldn't have any problem moving to a regional government and authority and in the northwest and if you took those two as building blocks and they comprise the second and the third largest cities in england birmingham and manchester so you took those two regions which i think you could do by consent particularly in the context as you say of covid19 and this real sense of national failure then i think fairly quickly you'll find other regions wanting to follow suit because they'll realise that they're losing power and, to be blunt, money by not doing so. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way that I agree, Andrew, and of course, I was aware of Andy Street, but I guess my point is this. I think Andy Street's capacity to speak on behalf of the West Midlands is much less than Andy Burnham's capacity to speak on behalf of Greater Manchester, partly because he's from a different political party and partly because in Manchester, they'd had 20 years of getting through all the difficulties of getting, is it nine local authorities to work effectively together? And that work is under your start at the most. I think the point is simply, you have to be patient about these things and you have to go with the grain of public acceptance rather than kind of impose grand plans from the centre. Now, COVID is one element of this, but there's another element, isn't there, Andrew? Let's be honest about this. You know, you are an unashamed proud Ramona. Is this, to an extent, also your way of dealing with Brexit in the sense that 
We know from the old regional economic development agencies, you know, I used to work with those development agencies. Of course, they had limited powers. They were only economically focused. They weren't elected. But they all had very strong relations with Europe because as economic bodies, they understood the importance and the value of the European market. It's your secret plan here, Andrew, to say, well, look, okay, you know, UK or in particularly England has turned against European Union and I probably can't win that battle again for a couple of generations. But what I can do is I can create a federal England and then the prime ministers of the kind of new English lender, they can reach out. And whilst they might not be able to rejoin the European Union, because you're not suggesting that level of devolution, they can get very, very close to the European Union. So in a way, in a back door, this is your secret, clever plan of mitigating the impact of Brexit? Well, it's not very secret, uh, Matthew. I'm going to be completely open about it and in the privacy of this podcast to say up front, as you know, I never refuse to call a spade a spade. The only thing I would say, though, is that that's not the only issue which is at stake here. The big issue which we're seeking to address here is the causes of Brexit. And what were the causes of Brexit? There were some which, as a social democrat, I am strongly resistant to. The xenophobia, the hatred of the European Union as a straightforward constitutional thing. I'm against those, and I think you just have to argue through those because I don't want Britain in the 21st century to be an inward-looking xenophobic country. However, there were also very legitimate causes of Brexit, and in particular, the lack of balanced regional growth in England, the real sense of being left behind by the regions in the Midlands and the North, and the failure of government in London. And this is partly our responsibility when we were in government. We didn't do enough to bind England together in a project of shared prosperity. And it became very clear to me, looking at what happened in the 2010s and the Brexit referendum, that we had to have an answer, one that worked to this issue of what are we going to do in terms of a real project that produces jobs, prosperity and livelihoods and prospects for people outside London and the South East. And if we get that right, then, of course, they will all be better off will be a much more successful country. And I think that some of those causes of Brexit, which were basically just turning in a kind of populist way against all authority and all government, which was a big cause of that no vote in 2016, I think we'll have dealt with that as well. And that may be part of what then happens in the wake of that may well be our capacity to get closer to Europe again. Well, that's a very powerful argument, Andrew. And as I say, I'm an enthusiast for the case that you've made. But I just want to end by, in a kind of slightly more personal note. Now, one of the things I've realised, Andrew, the way we mythologise ourselves is occasionally I speak to people and I say about, about an argument which I think time has proven me right. And I say, remember that argument. I was right, wasn't I? And nearly always what happens is the person who I confront says, you're caricaturing my position. I never believe what you're suggesting I believe. So I may be about to have that same moment with you, Andrew, because what I'm going to say to you is that I think that when we were in number 10, we were on either side of an argument about schools. And that myself and Gavin Kelly were trying to persuade you and to persuade Tony Blair, and we were unsuccessful, that the idea of removing local government from any strong relationship with schools, getting rid of any kind of intermediate institutions, apart from like Ofsted regional offices, between central government and schools, wasn't going to work, that you needed to have democratic accountability. You needed to have intermediate institutions. And so I have always thought of you really as someone who's pretty hostile to 
localism, even localism on the scale that you're talking about it now. And I'm also going to say, Andrew, and the reason I'm saying this is because you beat me and Gavin hands down. You completely won the argument with Tony and we lost it totally. I also want to say to you that I think in COVID, we did see the problems that exist when schools are atomized institutions and don't have strong local bodies who can work with them to solve a common problem. So, Andrew Adonis, am I right to say that I was right and you were wrong, or am I caricaturing the argument that we had all those years ago? Well, being a great believer in Tony Blair and the third way, I'd like to say that we were both right. (laughs) (laughs) It is true that I was in favour of a strong centre. The reason I was in favour of a strong centre actually isn't because I was against proper devolution. I've always been in favour of proper devolution, but very well aware of the big problems in England that we've got. The reason I was in favour of a strong centre is my view very strongly is that the people who are in charge have to behave as though they're in charge. And the people who are in charge in any system of government are the people who control the money. And the reason why the education system in England is necessarily controlled in terms of its overall policy and the actual decisions taken about school structures and things of that kind. The reason why central government has to direct it, in my view, is because it it pays almost all the money. And it doesn't matter whether you say that you're giving local government a bigger say. When it comes to big, significant change, that simply won't work because local authorities don't have the money. The money resides in the centre. And if the centre says it's not going to do anything about it, then what you get is an impasse. In Scotland and Wales, by contrast, where the money is handed down completely, they just given all the money and they decide what they're going to do, then they're in charge. And it never crossed my mind that we in London would start trying to tell the Scots how they organise their schools. So I think we're both right. I think it's certainly true that I wasn't a great lover of local education authorities. That's absolutely true. And maybe I was wrong about that. But the reason for it is because I think, you know, he pays the piper plays the tune. But I am strongly in favour of clear lines of responsibility. And if Andy Burnham becomes, you know, for the sake of this argument, Prime Minister of the North West, and he has the budget, he has given the budget for education, so the buck stops with him, then I certainly wouldn't think that a minister in London should start telling him what's going to happen to schools in Manchester. But what we can't have in the big public services is no one really in charge. And a good part of the reason, I think, why things are so bad in the Midlands and the North is because of this strong sense that no one is in charge. In London, by contrast, you not only have a mayor, but also central government is itself located in London. And so therefore, when I was Minister for Education, I also actually, as it happens, had the title Minister for London Schools. Because the Department for Education is right in the middle of London itself, it did indeed have a capacity with real knowledge to act across the city, which is much harder when you're dealing with Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle and so on. So it's a constant process of learning, government. I've definitely become more strongly in favour of bold action for decentralisation in response to what's happened in the last 10 years. I think you were in advance of me on that, Matthew. I fully accept that. And I hope that the new synthesis by this process of what the Marxists call it, you know about these things, dialectical something, whatever it is, it leads us to a new way forward, which involves a bold move on creating English regions. Well, that's great. And next time I meet Gavin, Andrew, and we're discussing the scars of our failure to win the argument with you, I will say to him, it turns out that Andrew's problem was not with devolution, but that there wasn't enough (laughs) devolution. (laughs) But I also want to say, Andrew, when I talk about policy and policy failure and success, one of the examples I always offer of policy success 
is London Challenge and the way in which you crafted that policy yourself, Tim Brighouse, and I can't remember the name of the civil servant who oversaw. They're called John Coles, who actually runs one of the biggest academy chains in the country, as it happens. I often describe the mixture of your kind of what I describe as a kind of individualistic view, which is around, you know, getting behind great heads, letting them take over other schools, being pretty tough with schools that are failing. Tim Brighouse's view, which I describe as a kind of solidaristic, really all about how do we achieve greater equity and reaching out to teachers and parents. And John Coles's view, which was very kind of technocratic, how do you actually deliver this? And I always describe this as a wonderful example of effective policymaking because it combines these different perspectives in a dynamic way. So I encourage people, rather obscure document, but if you ever want to read about policy success, we live in a time when policy failure is all around us. You want to read about policy success, read the Institute for Government's evaluation of the London Challenge programme because it will show you how good policy can make a massive difference. Andrew, it's been wonderful talking to you. I hope our listeners will forgive all the kind of nostalgia and do read Andrew's article in The New European. Andrew Zonis, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.